0: I never understood why why they say one, two, three, so that they see if the Ts and the different letters in one, two, and three like go all the way up to to the max, but they are always leveled the same way. I guess that's boomer technology from back in the day. But speaking of uh, speaking of boomers, it's like two a.m. where I'm at right now, and I'm uh, I'm drinking a Monster Energy, which reminded me that I recently saw uh, ads for like a alcohol version of monster energy oh, called yeah. beast but you know uh-huh. it's it's uh, it's sad that they didn't go all the way because apparently they removed caffeine from the alcohol version so uh, just so like guarana and alcohol liter- yeah yeah <laughs> literally I, I mean uh if like the coke fiends or the or the edgy teens want to get drunk and also keep their energy levels up now they have to buy a monster energy and a monster alcohol. Mm. So I guess from a from a business side it makes sense, you know. Soon Look what they took from you. <laughs> exactly, soon we will have uh, all alcohol will be uh, chi- uh what the fuck what are they even flavored with like white uh, gasoline flavored. Um have but not like
1: Have you ever had that um they make a brazilian soda that's just like guaraná flavored. It's just it's like made out of guaraná. It's, like, um not an energy drink. It's just whatever yeah. the fuck guarana is. I'm sure it's, like, so, some plant in Brazil. Yeah. Um, but it tastes like if energy drinks tasted better. Like, it's really good. I, I When I was in Spain, like, I drank it all the time. But it gives you, like, a little bit of energy, but, like, not as much as you'd need for, like, the speedball effect of Four loco.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember back in high school, we had... Uh we had like a a senior trip at the end of the year and this was i went to a little christian high school full of good you know little goody two shoes and we went to this place uh and there was a gas station down the road and they still had at this time because we were in texas they didn't ban it there for a while the original recipe for loco where it still had the energy still had the alcohol and one of the the guys went and they found they i don't know they found a dude at the gas station to buy a bunch of for loco for them and so they brought this back this 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 holy elixir to the, this high school party and it was absolute bedlam you had people getting in fights you had kids like these you know 18 19 year old kids just locking themselves in bedrooms and doing these unspeakable acts <laughs> and this, this is this is when society peaked when we had four loco on the shelves before they were they turned into cowards and took away our, our caffeine so, and
0: energy mix so it had caffeine <laughs> in it it had caffeine in it right
1: yeah that was the whole thing with it it was like um i mean like so for the few years before four loco came out red bull and vodka was like a pretty popular cocktail like oh, in america yeah. and then that got people thinking like okay well why is this good like why do people like this it's because it's a speedball like mm-hmm. whenever you mix uppers and downers like you're not supposed to do it <laughs> because it gives you serotonin mm-hmm. syndrome but it while you're doing it it feels awesome. I'm sure everyone when they were like in high school or college like had has done that thing where you drink on uh, Adderall. That's uh, yeah. like awesome. <laughs> I don't I like I I, I don't drink. I, I I haven't been able to drink for many years uh because I get like um acute pancreatitis if I drink. But like oh yeah. Oh that's That awesome. was oh there's other shit. But like um that that was um for loco they were the first people to think like okay what if we what if we like you know had a ready-made speedball people could buy <laughs> and the caffeine in for loco i honestly think that's what made it so insane not so much the mm-hmm. AB, the abv mm-hmm. was high you could get it to where it was like i don't know like somewhere between like you know 20 to f- f- i think even like 30 proof which is like uh 10 to uh 15 alcohol by nice. content whereas most beers are like three percent to like y- you know eight percent on the high end but mm-hmm. like there's just so much fucking caffeine in it and it would fuck you up yeah. so much i think most people around my age their blackouts most of them were for a loco based and it was yeah. cheap
2: yeah oh for sure yeah, you felt like a god for a few hours, and then you woke up the next day, and you're the sickest you've ever been.
1: Yeah, you felt uh, horribly know. sick, like not just because of like obviously speedballing, like mixing uppers and downers, but yeah. this is something I've thought about with cocktails a lot. Whenever people are like, oh, I'm so hungover, I drank you know, fucking mm-hmm. eight vodka ginger ales, and it's like, okay, well, you <laughs> mm-hmm. drank a lot of alcohol for sure, but like, would you normally drink eight sodas in like a <laughs> yeah, four-hour yeah. span?
0: That's like rule yeah. number one that they taught me at when I was fucking twelve years old here in Eastern Europe. You do not, you when you drink spirits, you do not ingest anything that has sugar in it. Like if you go to a lot of Slavic weddings, like all the men ask for the cake to be packaged for home because they do not want to oh. ingest any <laughs> fucking sugar because the hangovers on They're the serious. hangovers on the next day are absolutely wild. Yeah, like that, that's just smart. You, Yeah, drink it.
1: Yeah, all alcohol. People don't know this. Slavs apparently know it. Alcohol metabolizes into sugar in your body. That's what
0: yeah, it does. Yeah, mm. yeah. It turns out, exactly. I mean, half of the alcohol in your alcohol is uh, is sugar that eventually, through fructose, you know, becomes uh, ferments into into the actual percentage of booze that you have in your drink. I mean, we make actual, you know, homemade alcohol and stuff, and depending on how uh, sugary a particular fruit is, that will very often determine just how intense. Hence the what we here call like uh, rakia or whatever the fuck is uh, uh, is going to be, but I don't know. Uh, when I went to to the, to the states on like work and travel, my first experience of America it was very very funny because like uh, I saw four loco in, uh, in in the store. Uh, I immediately saw the, the higher percentage level. I, I bought it because you know you get drunker after a shift from it than how much money I would have to spend mm-hmm. on like fuck what six coronas. Which by the way, Corona beers in the states. Super Super cheap he, here. It's like the luxury beer, you know. You like uh, an edgy, yeah. edgy uh, university white boy, and you you open up a Corona, and it's like <laughs> it's it's fancy. And the bars, you know, when you when you order the most expensive beer, very often in like the club, they bring you the the bottle of uh, champagne or vodka, or whatever you ordered, and then Corona beers. So different uh, different mm. uh, vision of you know the expensiveness, uh, luxury of, of Corona. But now nah, the reason I, I went for for locals is because it was cheaper to get uh, to get drunker faster to, you know, uh, forget my immiserating existence over there. But every, all the the American (laughs) colleagues or when we would uh, get together, the other, you know, people my age, from western europe or from or from the states they would always be like why are you drinking this this is like for for idiots or for like genuine hardcore proof alcoholics and i guess i'm uh, both an idiot and uh, at that age a hard proof yeah. alcoholic so it it worked for yeah. me i don't know it worked but i don't remember if it had sugar uh, sugar then or, or not but uh, but yeah enough about enough about sodas and any dr- energy drinks is anyone playing the the hogwarts game I personally refuse to play it uh, out of principle. Instead, I'm uh, doing my 12th replay of the newest Call of Duty because I love those slow-motion scenes of uh, decapitating Middle Eastern and Slavic children. It just gets me (laughs) off, man. It's
2: not a good game unless you're committing war crimes. This is my stance. I've always held this stance. I think uh, more games should... Uh, demonstrate a willingness by the aggressing country to uh, assassinate foreign leaders with missiles uh, controlled by the player <laughs> yeah the new call of duty is wild you it's... kill
1: Suleimani in the first mission
2: yeah yeah exactly you like you walk out of this little this crevice in the rock like yeah there he is let's get him and you pilot a, a missile that blows up the entire area well you know welcome to call of duty but i mean we've known this for a long time it's it's you know straight up propaganda but
1: hey the multiplayer is fun <laughs> I actually like the Call of Duty campaigns. Like, I know they're like, it's like a video game that they would make with the Third Reich one, but like, <laughs> yeah. I do like think they're, I they are fun. Like, they have yeah. like really good fun set pieces. They play like the newest one. I actually liked a lot more than Modern Warfare twenty nineteen. Um, mm-hmm. I like it's ridiculous and like yeah, awful propaganda. I don't know if you've played Cold War. That one's, like, particularly ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's bad. You're just, like, a Gladio agent in that. That's why I was yep. excited <laughs> when they announced it, because it's like, oh, someone finally did make a Gladio game. And you kind of do... Like, yeah. you are... You know, spoilers for anyone who's really invested in Call of Duty Cold War <laughs> and hasn't played the campaign in, like, three years. Um, you actually, like, are Ultra in that. Like, that's part of the plot. Literally, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um... No, I've not played the Hogwarts game. It looks like the UI it already just the UI turned me off alone. It looks like the um Yeah. You know the Demon Souls remake on PS5? <laughs> yeah. It's like the same like shitty like refinement UI. Exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I don't know if like the same like it the same studio might have done it for all I know.
2: Yeah. Well, the thing that stood out to me with this game or someone tweeted it out it was you can, in a game about being a, a witch or a wizard and like using magical spells and stuff, you have access to fewer spells in the Hogwarts game than moves Pikachu can learn in Pokemon. It's like, man, at least have the, the scope. Put in some magic in the magic game. At least You have to
0: kill
1: people. I'm looking up the developer. Um, so they previously, the other games that they've made are um, Cars 3, Driven to Win. <laughs> um Oh, they made 25 to life? Oh, that was a good fucking
0: game. <laughs> PS2, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, 25 to life. Okay, I like take back. Or maybe for nostalgia
0: I remember it as being good, but uh mm-hmm. but yeah, I like that game. I think that yeah. was the first game I, I I like played a black guy and I was like, whoa, like this is fucking different. You can be one of them. It was uh, <laughs> my little, you know, my little far away foreign brain was uh, was pleasantly confused. back then People it, people it,
1: like hated this game when it came out. Like it got really, really? bad reviews. Mm. But I honestly like I don't know the same thing where it's like my memory of it is not that bad.
0: Exactly. Mm. I don't think I played but the I-
1: entire game, though.
0: Yeah, same. But with with, uh, with Cold War, I love how in the end, uh, b- between the two endings, and again, spoiler warning, but I don't care. Uh, if you side with the with the with the West, with NATO, with the Americans, and so on, they literally betray you and kill you. But yeah. if you side with with the Soviets, you like get embraced. You you feel proud. You feel love. You get you get uh, um, uh, you know indirect, not promoted, but uh, you get the. Uh, reward of kind of saving the Soviet Union from its impending doom by nuking all of uh, all of Europe, you know. Uh, you are allowed to execute all your former teammates and so on, and it's it's kind of it's kind of satisfying. So if you if you play throughout the whole campaign, you know, as a as a as a communist, you are like very triggered, so to say. It uh, it does give <laughs> you that little. Um, Thing at the end Where you get to You know uh, Screw off the The filter And completely uh, Let yourself go And you know Get all of that Sort of uh, Bad energy out Which I I can't say I didn't I didn't enjoy After you know Murdering like uh, t- 20,000 comrades Especially that <laughs> fucking thing When you're getting out Of the basement Of the KGB building And yeah. there's two of you And you're just LMGing Through like All of these fuckers Imagine if anybody Made a game Where you were LMGing And it's not GTA Through like Uh uh, u.s police force uh, they did ground, pops, Zero- yeah. ground zeroes
1: you do that in ground zeros tell me about it. i've that. never played that metal game. gear solid ground zeros is like one of the best portrayals of like the evil american empire ever in any oh man game. if our other host was here he loves he loves metal gear he'll back me he would back me up on this so like metal gear solid ground zeros it came after peace walker i don't know if you guys played peace walker not a lot of people have because mm-hmm. it was like on psp you can you can play it on other shit now and it's actually like a pretty good game but peace walker is like very cutesy and like um sort of self-aware campy there's a lot of homoeroticism between uh big boss and kazuhiro miller Mm -hmm. and there's all these mini games it's like i it's like one of the cutesier metal gear solid games right and then it goes immediately into ground zeros where like the one of the subtext to that is basically like the nazis won you know Mm -hmm. like even if world war ii happens in the same way in metal gear solid as it does in in actual history but it's implied like okay well we're nazis like america's nazis now and you go to gitmo and it's horrifying like there's full they're waterboarding and like sexually abusing and torturing like a girl like a 17 year old like it's horrifying you, the main people criticized it at the time because the main mission is like it was a you know 50 dollar game but the main mission was like two three hours long max but people oh, well. don't realize that that it unlocked extra missions and like all to all told it's probably like i don't know 12 to 14 hours of gameplay which is still not that much you know for a yeah, 50 game like yeah. but it was a good story it's a fucking amazing story And also, like, the missions go even deeper into, like, how evil Gitmo is, how evil, like, America was, like, during the Cold War and, like, now kind of. And there's this mission called Glass and Pillets, where the Soviet Union has given you, Big Boss, the contract to Mm -hmm. execute these two American soldiers who were, like, notorious war criminals during Vietnam. Hmm. And you can actually – you can do the mission any way you want. And you can shoot them with a sniper rifle, or like slit their throats, or do whatever. But if you if you grab them and interrogate them, they're just like these hollow shells. They're just these like awful cogs in the machinery mm-hmm. of death. Yeah. And it like they really did that like incredibly well. I thought it was so fucking cool. And people really didn't talk about that aspect when it came out. But there's there's also a mission where you're riding around in a helicopter, like gunning down Marines at Gitmo. Wow. Like wow. with the minigun It's, it's amazing ahead. they let him get, so get away with all that It was, it was, yeah, it was a yeah. fucking cool game
2: We're gonna have to play that on stream or something That sounds amazing Also,
1: it's like I would say Ground Zeroes and um, Metal Gear Solid 5 Like I know Metal Gear Solid 5 Is unfinished Obviously, everyone knows that But just mechanics wise mm. Like how it plays The best modern stealth games
0: Welcome to another episode of The Deep Program. And boy, do we have a special one for you this week. Joining us from sunny and absolutely unwalkable California, USA, (laughs) is none other than Felix, co founder and co host of the biggest left wing podcast and arguably biggest openly socialist show on the planet, Chapo Trap House. Proud Avatar fan, writer, stealer of veteran valor, and smoker's rights activist. Felix. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Uh, Please tell anyone in our audience who might not be familiar with your work a little bit about yourself. And let's jump into this.
1: Uh, Thank you guys for having me. Um, I, um, I've unfortunately been podcasting for like 10 years now. Um, I started in uh, college. I started in 2013. Um, Unfortunately, I decided to keep going with that. And I eventually (laughs) co-founded um former number one on patreon now number three or four uh Chapo <gasps> trap house which is uh oh, wow what's number one now number one now is uh matt and Shane's secret show which is like the i i i, I, I have no idea what that is matt uh they're, they're those dudes are funny i'm like okay. you know they're, they're, as long as they're cool no those are funny those dudes are funny um I was a little more annoyed to lose number one to a true crime show. Like that was tough. Yeah, that's uh, what like, I expected. Yeah, that. But they—they've actually been. We're within striking distance of them now. Um, Hell yeah! But Matt and Shay, those two, those two dudes are actually like, yeah, they're—they're they're, they're very funny. They deserve number one.
0: Nice. That's I'll check it out. for I, them. Yeah, but I doubt anybody's. Uh... Funnier than than Trappo, honestly. But then again, I'm I'm very subjective. Before we started recording, I was like, since my sophomore year, I've been I've been listening uh, to the show, and uh, I guess Felix started recording when he was a sophomore. So there we go. But speaking of podcasts. You were there in the beginning, paved the way for you know shows like ours, and uh, survived the onslaught of millions of pasty white boys trying to take your spot. I guess I'm succeeded now. Okay, so uh, (laughs) give us uh, give us a bit of uh, world building here. You know, what's your take on how OG podcasts started as a genre, and more importantly, you know, are all podcasts arch enemies of other podcasts?
1: um podcast started just because um i don't know there needed to be something to replace their tra- traditional radio show mm-hmm. you know it, it's a better idea to have something that's on demand rather than you specifically have to be in your car or at your radio at a specific time yeah. but um if i was going to credit anyone with getting the mo- podcast as we know them today because podcasts have been around like you know since like 2001 honestly um you know the the pod and podcast comes from ipod but Mm -hmm. uh Mm. yeah it would probably be joe rogan is is most responsible for what they are like now you know the joe rogan experience started in what like 2007 or something like pretty early joe rogan experience started before twitch was twitch when it was still justin tv it streamed live on justin tv Mm. and he would release the recordings um but he's the one who really like you know he was like well why can't the podcast be like you know three hours long sometimes most of the time for him yeah um that show i don't know uh people who are younger don't know this but like that show actually used to be really interesting rogan show i know now it's hmm. like he will have on like a navy seal who's like oh i've invented a new way to drink water (laughs) called the five (laughs) seven one method or like just a regular republican that you can see anywhere else but he used to have like in like this um guys like this insane british guy he would have on called graham hancock who's like oh the ancient egyptians like had ipads yes and they used <laughs> they used I mushrooms to like talk to god <laughs> and and explore space like it it was re- really used to be cool uh, i you know it was either episodes like that or like he would have like a a comedian like a uh, older comedian like keith robinson on and it would be like a surprisingly funny episode but, uh, you know, since then, uh, you know, when we started podcasts, we're in like kind of, kind of an awkward transitional stage because the only way anyone had really figured out how to monetize them was through sponsorships. Like there were already mm. like dozens and dozens of very successful podcasts when we started, uh, you know, like Mark Marin, shit like that. But again, like sponsorship, that's how they made their money. I would... Pro, like the first podcast I saw do this, like uh, that I saw use the Patreon model where it's like one episode's free and one's paid for, was Radio Warnerd, which is still going and it's mm. an incredible show. And uh, yeah. Ames and uh, Dolan have been like remarkable inspirations to us, both in us, you know, stealing their business model and also just you know, them as writers they are incredible writers, their show's incredible. I really cannot recommend that show enough to people who want to be informed about global conflicts. I uh, it's a great show. But um you know, we just we we were just like, okay, what the fuck? Let's do that because we started our show sort of in the twilight of the Bernie 2016 campaign and it you know, it, it, none of us expected it to be as popular as it was. Uh, like 5,000 people listened to the first episode after a few days, which was like way beyond what we expect we just saw like a few Mm -hmm. hundred people from twitter would like it but once we realized that um you know what we were doing it was filling a niche that wasn't previously fulfilled we're like i don't know maybe we can do this full time and like we instantly saw success on patreon like um from yeah pretty much the beginning like the listeners have been incredibly supportive um we were the biggest uh pod, like thing on Patreon for the longest time. But I think since we since we did that, since people saw that you can you know you can have like ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand subscribers, like a ton of people have gone to Patreon. That's mm-hmm. what like Matt and Shane have almost uh fifty thousand subscribers, which is like fucking incredible. Wow. Good God. Um but yeah that that's basically it. And the niche we filled was just like you know there was left wing content out there, but and there there was really good left wing content like Radio Warnerd. Um, but there wasn't as much that was just like fun. Like Radio Warnerd's fun, but I I don't think they would build themselves as like a comedy podcast, which I think we primarily right, yeah. are. And yeah, that's really that's really the niche we filled, and I you know we're I guess we're still filling because like weirdly like after you know long after the unsuccessful bernie 2020 campaign we kind of i kind of thought that that may be like our peak of popularity and we kind of plateau after that
0: but grill pills back then
1: (laughs) yeah we like yeah we we have more subscribers than ever now Mm, which is sort of insane to me We, we are like i don't know if there's a you know another presidential election we might we might come back to number one
2: yeah i mean you guys have become a staple in the podcast landscape and I, I have no doubt like people remember your coverage of the bernie campaign and like i do too so i'm sure you know once trump gets back in it and he he gets back in the saddle and we see him taking on Rhonda from florida you guys i think you're gonna see a huge influx of people who just want the shit talkiest coverage they can find and that's that i think is where you guys really shine is is the uh, is just the bullshit and the coverage of the,
1: the horse race bullshit. Well, I mean, honestly though, that's why us like breaking our own record now is kind of surprising to me because like politics is, it's pretty much no politics happening in America right now. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, so I would say like, we're, we're kind of like, we're definitely riding off the strength of hell on earth, which is uh, Matt and our producer. Mm. Chris's uh, incredible series on 30 years war yeah, slaps. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah, I we were. Um, I don't know. We were we were talking about it a while ago. How it, you know weird it is to have something in in such an impermanent medium as podcasts and on the internet, mm-hmm. like uh, everything here, and especially like in comedy in general, is incredibly ephemeral. That it's turned mm-hmm. out to be as sturdy as it has definitely surprised yeah, me. What,
0: when something becomes a household name i mean you know you have uh, people who are pop singers and then they move into rock and then they become actors and people who um, got used to uh, receiving quality from them when they were pop singers even though pop and quality but you get what i'm saying uh, (laughs) tend to follow them throughout their other adventures it depends on just how you know Deeply into the subconscious of the, in this case, listeners, you you get in, and how much, in this case, they uh, they respect your opinion, and how much entertainment they get out of it, and you know, uh, for mm. how much they get radicalized, etc., etc. That even when you cover topics that are in no way uh, connected to maybe why they started listening uh they they still continue to to continue to follow so while it feels because you know it's this relatively new phenomenon this super like it's super weird for me for example to say that you know i'm i like i i try to not even tell people you know that uh, i do i do i do a podcast because it's one of the kind of it feels like a, a i never entered people. a cheat code into capitalism yeah. like i i can make a decent living i can you know propagate my ideas and ideology et cetera et cetera and i i don't have to you know uh piss down anyone's throat you know I don't have to have employees. I don't have to betray my ideals while at the same time being able to live a relatively decent uh, life in capitalism I don't know if you guys feel like it but it, to me it feels like like I am you know living in non-reality everyone else be it with their with their 9 to 5s or their businesses or their struggling addictions etc cetera, etc cetera, are living you know in the real world but like by being able to pull yourself out of the quote unquote real world and do this as a as a profession while also being able to find purpose in it is both a blessing but it's also very like uh like confusing and then put on top of that uh what what felix mentioned previously you know the feeling that uh, it might go away at, at at some point creates this cocktail of uh of, you know, you both being uh, grateful for being able to do what you're doing at the moment, but also feeling confused about whether, uh, you know, you, like, you're you even real to an extent. If, if it makes sense what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah,
1: that, that, I mean, that is fundamentally the problem with like any entertainment career, like all of that. Yeah. Like an entertainment career, you certainly have like a higher ceiling than most careers that, of people have, but there's also, like, there's no real guarantee. Like, no one has to keep subscribing to you. It can all, Mm -hmm. you know, very well all go away, like, tomorrow. Uh, And, you know, what you said about, like, living outside the cycle, absolutely is the vast majority of that is positive, right? Like, no one wants Mm -hmm. to have a 9 to 5 or anything like that. But I do think that the longer you do, you know entertainment whether it's like you know internet based independent or something else you do lose some connection to mm-hmm. the rest mm. of humanity there is something you lose when you um just do not worry about the same things that most people worry about and you kind of have to reconcile what that means for you and your output you know do 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 you fight against it do you try to make it seem like you are still just a year removed from being a normal guy? Or mm-hmm. do you accept mm-hmm. it? That's it true. depends. Right. It depends for everyone.
2: Especially when your work is ideologically driven like uh like ours is. You know, we can we can get on our podcast and say, you know, we the working class must unite, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff, which is, you know, well and good and, and true and stuff. We're we are just as tenuous in our position as a lot of normal, quote unquote normal workers are but it's like you said you're you're a step removed you're kind of like looking out over the wasteland and commenting on it rather than than shuffling along through it yourself so it's it can be there can be a bit of cognitive dissonance there
1: yeah i always thought like i always thought it was like silly when like uh people would criticize us just for the fact that like the show is successful because it's like yeah we're not really like exploiting anyone like we we're all like we all make the same we're all like co-owners in the in the show and everything but like there is something to be said for the idea that like it has been so long now you know it's been like seven fucking years since any of us had anything like resembling a normal life which is you know something we're obviously Mm. aware of and are open about but it is something to think about you know not just not just in your output but I don't know your life, it changes, it changes the the tenor and tone of your interactions with like almost everybody.
0: Hmm. And even and even if you do have a quote unquote day job, for example, in my case, I'm still not living the full dream. JT over here, this beaut, you know, he's, he's doing like 500 different projects, but they're all <laughs> in uh, in the field of uh, of his passion. Hakim, who couldn't be with us today, you know, he he also has his day job, et cetera, et cetera. But there's there's a, there's a very interesting thing that happens there, where like um you know e- when I do go to my to my office gig or whatever, to my what I call sellout corporate job uh in the back of my head i always remember that that i have uh, this to fall back on so i have you know what uh, i don't know larpers would call uh a fuck you job or or fuck you money or you know yeah. where where it it gives me the the, the freedom of uh, basically the only reason why i haven't quit that job is cuz i'm i'm a, i'm a little bitch and i'm still you know afraid to completely jump into this uh, out of the fear of it not uh, you know of, of it potentially you know fading away for which reason by the way check out our patreon okay I'm fucking <laughs> wrong. but uh but not it 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 also like it doesn't necessarily alienate me from my fellow people that i see you know in the cubicle or whatever the fuck but to to a certain extent, what I'm noticing in myself is is a sort a, a sense of. A sp- I would hate to use the word but i'll still use it of, of uh, a bit of an elitist approach where i'm like looking at them uh, even seeing now at my age a lot of people completely embracing you know corporate ideology internal marketing mm-hmm. and completely becoming drones because unless they internalize this this ideology they will start losing their fucking mind they need to start be, you know believing in the hr line as they call it and i'm like seeing them while I, and i'm at the same time very sad for them because you know they haven't found their class consciousness or they haven't found their purpose etc etc but then i i also uh find myself being judgmental to to an extent because i'm like if i could fucking do it why don't you do it and then i remember that is like the oldest fucking you know yeah. cringe uh-huh. ass capitalist line of well uh, basically telling them uh pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh, <laughs> but but On the topic of class consciousness, like what the fuck? So, so uh, what I'm trying to say with this is, even when you, if you did continue having like a day job, so that you remember what it is like to, you know, wake up at nine and and work till fucking nine. it still wouldn't work the second you get into this uh, this uh, weird what you call the entertainment industry your you your brain is already wired uh wired differently and uh it's unfortunate because when it you know if we were just talking about true crime dramas and shit or uh fucking you know what uh, kim k did or what uh, the this prince or that said Um, uh, that alienation you know wouldn't wouldn't hurt what we're trying to do with the show in any other way but once you start feeling alienated from in this case you know working people like you know the boots on the ground then you uh then you risk on of like uh, not fulfilling what at least what we hear at the d program define as you know the, the original goal of the show which is you know to try and push as many people down the left-wing uh pipeline and out of all of the things that i fear the most sorry for the little rant is that that you know that i will i will forget why i started uh doing this not even to get away from the 9 to 5 not to you know get get an extra dinero so that i can uh, buy the fancier bread instead of uh, stale white shit but uh, because of you know the the ideological uh, purpose but you know hopefully it's not going to come to that and when i see Chapo existing for so long and it has not come to that with you guys very evidently with every episode uh, i i get uh, i get a bit more optimistic
1: well i would say that like I don't know. I um I had an easier time reconciling with the idea personally of being disconnected from the lives of like most of our listeners. Once I just, you know, accepted the the die is cast, you know, that that just is mm. what it is and our output is going to be better not trying to fight against that. Because right, no matter what, even if I like went out and like yeah, got to fucking, you know, I, I I drove Uber or something, you know, something like that, it still really wouldn't make me a normal person because I'm not depending on that, right. you know? It, it, exactly. it, it's like this has, um, I think, irreparably, like, changed my life and perceptions of my life. And at the same time, I don't think that that really prevents like the show from being good at all mm-hmm. um, yep. things like so so news cycles do or uh, not planning sometimes you know everyone throws some clunkers out there but hmm. um i yeah i am interested by what you said though that for you the primary goal of the show is to convert people which i think is like incredibly noble that's interesting to me because like for us You know we obviously started it in the in the you know background radiation of bernie's mostly defunct 2016 campaign Mm. uh in you know late spring of 2016. but we never necessarily thought like oh we're going to convert a bunch of people you know we we pretty much throughout all of this i would say most of our goal has been like entertaining the audience obviously there are times Mm -hmm. where you know you you think you you could be at like a a historical opening for something that you could help usher in some type of change if you can mobilize that audience to try to you know all work together towards this goal we you know i'm definitely proud of the listeners that we got to um you know help out with uh canvassing and uh Mm -hmm. Phone banking with Bernie 2020, even if the fundamental theory behind that campaign turned out not to come to fruition, the theory of activating um, non-voters, among other things, you know, like union drives and things like that. But I mean, I don't know. I've always been interested by people whose primary goal is ideological conversion. Because I don't know – I I guess for me, I've always been – I started out skeptical of the idea of, like, fully converting people. But incidentally, like, along the way, people have told me, like, oh, I was a fucking liberal, like, uh, Obama guy. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. I – you know, even I voted for Mitt Romney and now I'm here. I don't – yeah. You would say that's, like, the primary – the number one goal. For you, for your, all your output? It depends
2: on what we're what we're talking about. I think for like my channel, my YouTube channel especially, absolutely. Like I do Socialism 101 stuff, basically getting people over that initial hurdle of socialism bad. And Hakeem and Yugopnik are a bit more advanced than that. Um, but with the deprogram, I mean, as you can tell from the name, it was kind of intended as a way to help people unlearn all the years of propaganda that we've been spoon fed mm-hmm. um, by the corporate media and people in power and stuff like that. Um, but over time it 's also kind of become like like a break room where we mm-hmm. we just kind of hang out and help the listeners unwind because a lot of them told us like after the early episodes they 're saying, hey, we, we love your show specifically because we don 't feel super depressed after listening, like I was having a bad day, I listened to the d program, I get a little bit more hopeful about the future and like okay that 's good that 's something we can pair with the ideological work to help people feel better." People who feel better about themselves, better about the future, a little bit more hopeful, are more likely to be activated to go out and actually try to do something because they believe that a better world is indeed possible. So we're trying to strike that balance.
0: Yeah, perfectly put. I, I mm-hmm. wouldn't have anything to add to that except uh, that you know the, what the, our show is like—under seventy episodes old. So as it's uh, as it's growing, it's been uh, yeah. it's been adapting. So we have absolute shit post episodes, which are obviously there to one hundred percent unwind and for us to just make jokes and uh, and uh, enjoy each other's company. But then there are very strictly defined episodes, which are dress specific topics, be it in theory, be it in current events uh, blah 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 which try to convey an opinion to the uh, to the audience which then they can choose to to follow or not but what you said you know it doesn't matter if you started it more as an entertainment thing or not if if at the end of the day it uh, manages to even change one or five people's uh, mm. opinions further to the to the left you at the end of the day are a show which uh, uh which fulfills that as a goal willingly or not and that is uh, that is inherently you know, obviously subjectively a very a very good thing but uh uh, let's uh, let's go down the uh, the pipeline. As you know, most of you know the our show was you know founded by three professional internet opinion havers who posted their shit in video format. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Chapel Trap House, adjusted for its founding era, was rather similar, having been founded by professional internet opinion havers who posted their shit on Twitter. Uh, so a bit of a, a historical question, I guess, Felix. Uh, what was Twitter like uh, back then? Did it have any redeeming qualities, or was it uh, the same <laughs> shithole uh, as today? I'm not only talking about when you when you found the chapel, but also your your experience uh, on that hellhole from uh, from even before that era, especially for our I'm younger just, listeners.
1: I've just never agreed with. I've never agreed with the idea that it's like a terrible place. Mm-hmm. I've never fully agreed with that. I guess partially because I I remember um, the internet before Twitter. Yeah. Um, and there were, I think it would be absolutely healthier for us if, you know, we were back to forums and we weren't in a place where, like, you know, everyone is crammed into the same three or four places, certainly, but... I do also remember how, you know, for how nasty and vicious people say Twitter is, the internet in, like, 2009 was unfathomable, meaner and shittier. <laughs> and, like, yeah. there was way more, there's a way, like, just broader mandate to act horribly for any, almost... I any was on individual. HN back then.
0: That shit was epic.
1: Yeah, everyone, you know, whether it was, like, a well-known place like HN or, like, smaller forums... Most people who, like, you know, spent a lot of their adolescence online in the 2000s definitely have, like, a forum or two. They went where, like... Yeah, they did mm-hmm. things that are, like... Would be considered, like, beyond the pale for Twitter. But yeah, I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have... I To that end, though, I've never really considered Twitter, like, oh, my God, it's... Fu- it's uh, Hell, it's terrible. I've never really thought that. I, I mean, I guess it can be bad if you choose to like follow the tides of wherever the site is taking Mm. everyone that day. Right. Obviously. Um, if you just go by like whatever topic everyone is talking about by, you know, whatever engagement farming thing is happening that day. Yeah. yeah, It probably sucks, but it's highly dependent on like who you associate with, what type of content you're there to consume and things like that. And, and, for me in my experience mm. like you know twitter has obviously been around for a really long time like i my first twitter i got in like 2008 i think but and, and that was like you know an awkward transitional era where no one really knew what it was but after that like more mm. towards the beginning of the modern era like 2012 through through like you know 2016. I would say it's, it was a lot like how it is now, you know? There are cycles. Like, you know, for instance, um, 2013 saw, like, a bigger influx of users, and the, it was, like, a funny, like, chaos year where, like, you know, there's tons of, like, funny uh, stories about, like, infamous users, people cheating on their husbands or wives, like, things like that. Nice. Like, just the sort of drama you always see, people rising and falling, uh you know stuff like that then 2014 was actually it was a year very reminiscent of uh 2017 actually where um you know a lot of people it was their first entry into what they saw as like radical politics because you know the ferguson protests activated a lot of people and because twitter's Mm -hmm. user base sort Mm -hmm. of skewed younger a lot of people felt like oh like i you know i need to do something you know i need to like make my voice heard. I need to make it seem like I'm not just standing by while history happens. And a lot of, a lot of stuff like starts off with really good intentions on Twitter, but because every single person is whether they accept it or not performing for an audience, it obviously like devolves Mm -hmm. and turns into like, you know, mutates and becomes these hilarious things. Like it will start off as this like completely legitimate thing like you know police brutality and the general treatment that police police exhibit towards like you know black people in america and the underclass is like insane and it, it it's absurd compared to even other western countries and all, all these other things that people are talking about in 2014 but then it gets put through the meat grinder of people people yeah. performing for an audience And it becomes like all these insane fucking things you would see in 2014, like give your money to women and shit. Um, And then Mm -hmm. 2015, there was sort of like Mm -hmm. a backlash to that because whenever you get a year like that, there's a backlash year. And that's just like a fun, chaotic year where previously people who were, you know, very big and important – you know, sort of fall from grace a lot of the time. Hmm. 2016 was a really fun year because it was, you know, it was Trump. It was an unexpected election outcome. A lot of people behaving ridiculously. 2017 ended up being a repeat of 2014. And then, you know, then there's the backlash And then the backlash and and the the backlash and and then you go to 2020 where people are posting fucking black squares (laughs) and that's exactly like 2014 or 2017 so it just my, my my point is that um generally it just moves in cycles and even though the names of the people and the causes may change it's the same thing you'll always see you see um people performing for an audience a set of events happen People develop some type of political consciousness that starts off well intentioned, it gets completely obliterated by the fact that we're all performing now, and just Mm -hmm. the general breakdown of social communication due to uh, phones, and then you get a backlash
0: absolutely i I'm, I'm i'm the resident twitter defender here with th- these two assholes uh <laughs> I, I kind of i i, I share uh, your opinion but like it it it's also connected to like the the previous uh, topic that we we talked about when you uh while almost all of the so online movements start with uh, with great intention and uh, they, they come from a from an innocent place because as you put it well uh, of the performative nature of uh, everything which is done in public and what is Twitter if not you know arguably the most public uh, uh, forum that we that we currently have it uh, it turns into a I know it's a cliche or whatever but it, it ends up commodifying the message that you were actually trying To put out And the same with If you know If you're uh, If you say like You know me Relatively innocently I guess Yo I'm trying I'm I'm doing the show Because I wanna uh, We wanna Uh uh radicalized people push them further down the the pipeline once it becomes uh you know a, a a performance an aspect of that will always inherently be uh be lost but you know when gravity is gravity and you you cannot uh, avoid it uh you gotta concentrate on the actual good that comes out of it so yes well twitter maybe at the end of the day always performative well um an audio show ranting about uh gommunism is always going to be performative something still uh, uh, comes out of it at the end hopefully Uh, and it's just not it's not uh, you know again and this is a tired point and we talked we had like separate episodes talking about it here on the show but you know the big question of uh, uh, when you consume uh, content that makes you feel like you did something uh, similar to for example uh, you know uh, voting in the us you know you do it once every four years and you say you know i don't have to do absolutely anything else for the next four years does maybe consuming in this case left-wing content also make people feel like you know i've done enough uh you know i, I donated five bucks to uh, to these chapel guys or these program guys this is my uh, my activism of the day the week uh, or the year uh, but if we again, uh, if we concentrate only on that, nothing would uh, nothing would get done. Because today, like, tell me, is is there a thing that is not content? I mean, there's uh, mm. there's fucking five million sub YouTube channels of bricklayers motherfuckers that go into the forest and just make a make a wooden house for like three fucking years, and they make a mill out of out of, out of that YouTube channel. Absolutely everything is performative. Everything is content. So. The, the, it's gravity you you can't get uh, you can't get out of it no matter how much you try so you might as well try and use that content to the best of your ability to uh to impact uh, your surrounding and whatever you personally consider positive uh but um speaking of, I guess, continent podcasts and so on, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's an American product, no matter how much it hurts Hakim's little Arab soul, or how much it crushes my Slavic pride. Uh, We're basically in a yank business. So following that is the, you know, is the podcast the last great American product. I mean, the US used to, you know, pitch itself as such a cool kid down the street, but it very evidently isn't anymore. Sure, the rest of the world still listens to rap, buys your jeans, and, you know, eats McDonald's when we have a hangover, but all of that is now mostly thanks to good old cultural imperialism, which normies call globalization, as mainstream as it gets. So, when did this downfall as the cultural beacon of the world uh begin you know, i don't know when they banned smoking areas and restaurants when the twin towers went down rocky four uh when did the you know red white and blue stop being cool i really tried to make that rhyme i couldn't find a fucking way to make it <laughs> i think
1: i think even though even though it's like not cool to be american anymore mm-hmm. i don't know when the last time it was cool i don't know maybe 1992 or 1993 mm-hmm. American culture is still like the most effective weapon of the American empire, you know, whether it yeah. tends to be or not, it's still like the most pervasive thing, even if it's like not cool to be an American in other places. Um, American culture is still like the most broadly imitated culture and has the mm-hmm. deepest effect on culture throughout the world. I mean, everyone kind of uses formats we invented, whether it's the one hour drama or the, the modern pop song um Mm -hmm. i i it's it's something interesting to think about because even as you know if the american empire continues to um you know lose its potency a little bit in international affairs which i don't know i I go back and forth on right like sometimes Mm. you you look at things like um that the you know the fact that the deep state is so big that its own factions are fighting each other that um, mm-hmm. they had to give up on plans like toppling Maduro uh, they had to give up on regime change plans in Syria uh, you think oh maybe maybe it's 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 we're losing our bite a little bit but then uh, I would also say this past year that NATO generally is probably in a stronger position than it was five years
2: ago. Absolutely.
1: There are ebbs and flows. And I don't think anyone, any, any one of us, no matter how much any of us know, and I don't think even John Dolan himself could accurately predict where the empire, the blood and guts part of the empire will be 20 or 30 years from now. But I think if you're looking at an area where, we're should we show absolutely no signs of slowing down its culture and to Mm. that end yeah podcasting is a very american product because it's it's the perfect like bad ephemeral thing for this time and so are youtube videos and so is all of it we Mm -hmm. you know we americans are the author of the formats that the rest of the world uses
2: yeah, it's curious to see how, you know, maybe patriotism isn't super cool anymore. You know, you had the you had the patriotism of the, of the 1980s, the Reagan era stuff. Then you had the the cultural malaise of the of the 1990s where people just kind of checked out. and Like, all right, end of history, we're good. And then 2001, patriotism picked up a little bit again. And now it's like it may not be cool to be american but a lot of people have in the back of their mind okay but what's the alternative like if you know it's the it's the capitalism thing the capitalist realist take where it's like okay th- this is so ingrained in our psyche that we cannot possibly Im- imagine an alternative to a world where american culture is hegemonic so it's it's really interesting to see there's this this drift where you've got public opinion souring on the united states but u s cultural dominance, if anything, accelerating,
1: yeah, and i I don't know, I think even if we experience like an inarguable like generation spanning decline as the u k mm. has, I still think there would be a background radiation of American culture for mm. maybe a century or more. It's just it's just so pervasive, and I do have to say this. I do think that part of that is because a lot of American culture is good. Absolutely. Or if it's not good, if it's not good, it's good in the way McDonald's is, where the chemicals yeah. feel good. Some of American culture, I think, is legitimately like inimitable by anyone else. Like, I don't really think any other country can make rap like America can. You know, and there's a tragedy in there, of course, right, that yeah, yeah. The, probably like the most abused, uh, abused group of people within America create one of the most hegemonic aspects of American culture, one of the most celebrated and loved and mm-hmm. imitated. Right. But I don't know, just the combination of both the formats being so ready made and uh, everyone adapting to them. And the fact that people have been imitating it for so long now. Yeah, I think that background radiation is going to be there for a while. Even if Mm. even if there is like a day where it's like the fall of the American embassy in Iraq, even if that happens like in 200 countries in one day, I think even 50 years from that day, people will still be listening to American music and Mm. do like making American TV even if they're even if they're Korean or or, or, or Nigerian or anything. It's just so mm. fucking pervasive in this way that like British culture never could be when it was their empire.
0: Yeah. And even yeah.
1: even then, there's background radiation of British culture in former colonies and places all over the place.
0: To this day, even to an extent.
1: Yeah and they never made an. they never had like nba young boy or anyone that
0: good <laughs> <laughs> yeah like uh, right now I'm, I'm i'm sitting here i'm drinking the fucking monster next. Uh, like it's poured into a cup that says uh, boston on it and i uh, and mm-hmm. uh, I have the script open on uh, my laptop, and on which is what made in the U.S. and then a phone that's made in South Korea, which is basically Asian U.S. So uh, yeah. it, it, not even looking from the aspect of products, but. Uh, uh, being a representation of, of American culture to an extent, but also when we're talking about music, art, uh, and so on, some of the, the greatest uh, uh, pieces of art have come out of out of the U.S. in the last, you know, uh, century, you know, that has a lot to do both with the, the expression of, you know, very downtrodden groups inside of the U.S., but it also obviously has a lot to do with, you know, uh, it being the wealthiest country that has ever existed, so you know, uh, the the Socrates thing of you know people that only people that have enough time to you know be philosophers to philosophize uh can be philosophers so you know obviously in the in the place with the greatest wealth in the world uh the highest output of uh of great uh art content etc etc is going to uh is going to happen but like talking from from outside of the u.s a very interesting cool trend um that i've noticed is that people uh, have started quite literally quite intensively to define things as you know uh, i'm people don't say you know i'm into american rap people say i'm in into black music or african-american music or like hip-hop that has come out of uh, those and those communities inside of the u.s so kind of uh people are recognizing uh something that only americans up until recently genuinely noticed and that is just how divided up the the country is and how you know how different uh some guy from rural texas is to a fucking you know downtown new yorker uh the rest of the world again thanks to americans sharing these stories with us uh have have learned this and so you know more and more people uh when they say they appreciate a a particular thing that came from the United States, uh, they are better able to pinpoint from where inside of the United States it comes from. So that is kind of the the cool aspect of it because no matter how much, uh, you know, more and more people learn about, you know, the... Imperial core, you know, evils of empire, et cetera, et cetera. Thankfully, and I really hope they will be able to, they will be able to um, separate that from the from the incredible stuff that is that has uh, come to us from the from the U.S. You know, sometimes we, you know, in our, in our fervor of always always dunking on the on the Yanks, especially that I'm the resident, you know, uh, America hater here on the show. Uh, it's it's uh, important to to. Uh, recognize that uh, uh you know not all not those two are not uh, directly linked you you don't have to like uh, a system a government or foreign policy of a particular country and at the same time uh, call all of its cultural exports fucking degenerate or whatever the fuck uh that's literally fucking reactionary thinking
1: something i've something i've actually like been surprised about you know since um More Twitter than other places. Um, It was only through Twitter that um, I I got to really talk to and get to know a lot of people. uh, People who, you know, spent their entire lives in Lebanon or Syria or even like, uh, you know, grown up in Iran or maybe come here. Things like that. How actually, like, all these places, all these people who have all the reason in the world. To despise any American yeah. they talk to, where I would not blame them for that at all. How gracious and how much uh, they looked at it—you know, me or any of my friends—they took us as individuals first, rather than Americans. It, it was like a level of graciousness that mm. I typically do not see all Americans extend to any of our declared enemies.
2: Yeah, Hakim is the same way. I mean, he's—I'm more. Spiteful towards the United States than Hakim is, and his country was, you know, bombed to glass uh, not, it, within his living memory. So it's it is really interesting to see that that level of graciousness extended towards the U.S. Empire. Um, it, yeah. It's kind of cool. It's, it, it's something that I try to remember when I'm feeling particularly spiteful because there is, you know, you do kind of have to separate it, especially when you're just dealing with people from the place. They're not a representative of. That empire. They're just a person who lives there.
1: Yeah, and I even know, you know, I know guys who are like um sometimes Serbian or 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 Iraqi and they or Turkish. And they'll
0: you know oh, all of the nationalities up in here. Ah, <laughs> <Sorry>, yeah. <laughs> they'll,
1: they'll uh, you know, but they will like you know joke about like um, you know, mass ma- uh, potential mass death events in America, yeah. mm. but in their actual conduct. Like they're not it's Never. not like they're just like saying fuck off to any like yeah. English speaker or American. Like they're they're doing like banter and maybe maybe they do want that for all I know, but just in my experience I have found even people even people who say shit like that, like they're they're actually very gracious in person to Americans uh and see them as individuals for the most part.
0: Absolutely. One one hundred percent of the time. Uh it, it, the only like Person with true bigotry in uh, in their hearts that you would not meet from any of these parts of the world is uh, is an insane rightoid that uh, you know hates every other nation. Uh, sometimes actually appreciates uh, the Yanks because it wants to be inspired by uh, you know the whole. Uh, colonization, uh, history, et cetera, et cetera, wants to repeat that in, a, in their own particular region, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if, if anybody with, with a clear conscience uh, has negative opinions on, on the U.S. empire, it very rarely goes down to shitting on, on an individual person. But, you know, all of yeah. us from all, all other different countries, you know, re, the in, innate instinctful reaction is to, you know, genera- g- generalize the, the local population of... Whoever we are in uh, in a direct war with, or a cultural war, or whatever the fuck you want to call it, I mean, we can all see the insanely racist uh, generalization of of all Russian people uh, in you know the last uh, 365 days uh, since the since the conflict began. You know, Asian hordes, orcs. Uh, yeah. uh, all you know, why did don't they overthrow them tomorrow? That means that they all supported. Blah blah blah. But this is deja vu. This is see. Been seen through the millennia and will continue to be seen, uh, but very often the, the victim of uh, of uh, particular um, acts of violence uh, on a national level. While it would be completely understandable for them to look at all the all the citizens of uh, the so-called enemy state and and hate them, more often than not uh, uh, does not do so. While uh, citizens of a country that goes and invades unfortunately in order for them to sleep better at night very often adapt um, you know xenophobic racist, etc cetera, etc cetera, opinions of the people that they're going to invade because it's just easier but uh, let's not let's not uh, get too... Uh, to downer Or whatever Up in this bitch uh, in a, uh, So let's talk about Police violence <laughs> Phenomenal uh, in, a, in, a, in a recent uh, Chapo episode You guys talked about uh, Militarized thumbs I mean cops uh, After yet another Brutal murder Caused mass unrest In the country uh, We obviously know You know Police brutality Is just one consequence Of the capitalist states Monopoly of violence Being utilized Against the wider population Oh my god I'm making myself Fall asleep you know especially minorities in service to capital uh but i don't know damn your fucking guys really love doing it with uh, with a passion and, you know, a cab sure, tattoo it on my forehead, but, you know, together with the so-called uh, Israeli police force, I don't think uh, any other place on earth comes even close to being as uh, batshit as uh, the American uh, police force. Uh, I know this is a very, I guess, open-ended question, but... Uh, Why would you say that is like what makes American pork so much uh, more intense and spicy than international pork?
1: This is a question I've been thinking about a lot, partly because of uh, my rewatch of uh, SVU. But like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I kind of thought of it while I was watching SVU. Because that's a show specifically that presents, like, a hyper, hyper idealized version of American cops. Yeah. Where they're, like, compassionate towards victims and, like, empathetic and effective and ingenious and brave and self-sacrificing. And I think that... I, I think it's a combination of things, obviously. I think the fact that it is incredibly rare for them to be prosecuted for Mm -hmm. you know murder much less any of the other crimes several other crimes that that cops commit uh that's one aspect but i think largely it's uh maybe the type of person who becomes a cop in the first place is the problem Mm -hmm. you know i think that um all all, you know the democratic party's um fear response to the defund the police thing has been like no we need to like professionalized police departments which yeah. has resulted in just like paying these guys even more <laughs> and obviously like it's a municipal job uh cop salaries and income vary a lot depending on where you are but for a lot of them and for the most parts cops earn more than your average worker in America and have superior benefits some cops in, like, suburban municipalities can um, make, you know, $200,000 a year or more through overtime do... gouging. And, of course, there are departments that are, like, you know, your cops will make significantly less. It really depends on where you are. But on average, it seems like they make pretty decent money. And, you know, you can throw all the training and uh, pr- money at, at, at the existing police in america as you want it's not going to change the character of the people that join in the first Mm -hmm. place it just the job and the immunity that comes with it attracts people who want to inflict violence on other people yeah and i really don't know how you fix that beyond like a complete like a napoleonic code for american cities that covers everything you know
0: mm. really good point i mean uh somebody mentioned it in the in the Chapo episode it might have been you and matt like uh, what what you just said like uh, the type of people that the democrats want to see uh joining the the police force would never fucking join the police force because you know they uh, don't get off on beating the shit out of their wife or beating the shit out of uh, racial slur A, B, C, or D on the uh, on the street. So even if you're like uh, brainwashed into thinking that somehow you know you can have a a police force which works for the for the normal people in a in a capitalist society, and you try to reform it uh, into you know a, a less uh, uh, strong boot you know change the doc martens with uh with something from zara um it's it's not achievable because of just the i guess in the us the the, pol- the police has uh, its own uh, better developed lore uh, what i mean by that is like uh, you know uh, what it means to be a cop is more uh Better defined than what it is in in other countries, which is, from my perspective, basically you know we uh, we couldn't get it in get into the army, so uh, we want to be like an army that doesn't you know go abroad and beats the shit out of people, but uh, gets to you know uh, exemplify power that we maybe don't have in our own households or through uh, how we grew up, etc., etc., uh, which we want to get on the. On the street And uh, When you know The lore is very well defined Only people who know That specific lore Want to play the game uh, Or want to in this case uh, Join the police force Well Everywhere else I can talk about Eastern and Western Europe Personally It's very flimsy Like you know You have the idealists That come in Obviously you have the Insane uh, Domestic abusers That just want to do it On the street That come in But you know It's it's more fluid so you get You end up getting Some Relatively, quote unquote, normal people join the police force, but in the U.S., you know, you gotta, you gotta follow the strict, you know, uh, skull with the blue fucking lines thing, and uh, that's the only time when you're gonna be allowed to join. And even if you join and you're not like that, you fucking quit, you know.
2: I think a, a part of it in the U.S. is a legacy thing. I mean, co- the Lord. early cops were slave, ca- yeah, they, yeah, they were slave catchers, and they were strike breakers. They were yeah. they were hired with the explicit purpose of either catching other human beings to return them to slavery, or beating the shit out of striking workers. And that had that kind of mindset of treating your fellow Americans as enemy combatants has stuck around to the present day i think as you can see with stuff like cop city where they're training these people in like a, a full reconstruction of a city to to train them in urban warfare and stuff like you're not considering these people like the people you're supposed to protect and serve you think they're the enemy you're you're suspicious of
1: all of them you're on edge that's why you shoot them so much it's i think that's yeah, de- I, that's definitely true but i mean most other industrialized countries or Really, most other countries w- with police forces, their police forces also really didn't start with yeah, noble intentions either. I do. I think though you hit on something pretty valuable there. I really do think both with police violence and I don't know. I guess life in general in America, we we tend to downplay the effect of um, being told that we are at war all the time. Yeah, and the the this. Again, background radiation of the American empire and the death that that entails. The amount of uh, murders and repression dealt out to faceless people that we'll never know every day to maintain our way of life. I do think that has a massive effect on how our police conduct ourselves Mm. or (laughs) conduct themselves (laughs) cop confirmed (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but also as also as a lot of americans conduct themselves yeah i do think that we you know we bring to take a term from patrick wyman we bring the frontier home but we only mm. bring it home to specific parts of America, like the south side of Chicago or parts of Jacksonville or Baton Rouge. And yes, cops do tend to treat these neighborhoods as occupied war zones and yeah. treat the people there, as you said, as combatants. And if you treat people as combatants, they will act as insurgents. You know, mm. mm-hmm. if you're taught from the day that you're you know, you're, you have conscious thought that you're at war you know, what is your life going to be? Even if you do live in America,
0: good lore, us elections, 2024, uh, be quick. Give us the funniest scenario, (laughs) the least bad scenario and the worst scenario. Note, there is no quote unquote good scenario.
1: I think, uh, funniest scenario, Biden beats DeSantis by like four points, four or five points. (laughs) uh, dies two weeks from inauguration <laughs> or maybe two years into the term uh and then a I'm challenger hard. a challenger type event like some type of like national tragedy where the president like really needs to knock it out of the park kamala needs to nail that, <laughs> oh. Oh, <God. laughs> that because so oh. much funny shit would happen because a like if, like, DeSantis DeSantis got the nomination and lost to Trump, then, it, like, then, if you're the Republicans, like, then what? That was your entire idea. Yeah. It was like, oh, DeSantis is all the good Trump things with none of the bad. What do you even do? Do you just kill yourself? <laughs> um, Kamala being president would just—hilarious. Ev- they couldn't hide her anymore. Mm. You think it's even I possible? Think, I don't—yeah, maybe she's cursed. Maybe like Biden dies, but then like, I don't know, she gets impeached for like some embezzlement scandal from when she was a California Attorney General. Like, it's a Spiro Agnew type thing, and then like, yeah. The Speaker has to become President. But, um, worst scenario, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, DeSantis being President would be pretty bad. Yeah, Honestly, Kamala being President would be pretty bad. All of them would be pretty bad. I don't know. DeSantis with a trifecta would be pretty bad you'd probably see like the beginning of the end for like social security and shit and Mm -hmm. i i think you would see like sort of an increased posture of the american empire abroad i do think it would be kind of a more of a george w bush than donald trump administration even though his was also fairly bloody and uh for the most part, he governed as a regular Republican. It would be kind of that, but worse um I don't know. it's really hard to pick a worse outcome, yeah, they're all pretty bad, yeah, I think my money
2: would be on DeSantis like it's the same kind of situation as if you were looking at you know Donald Trump versus Ted Cruz or something. It's just the guy who's not Donald Trump is taken a little bit more seriously. He's a little bit less of a goof, which makes him a little bit more dangerous, like people are gonna they're yeah not gonna write him off quite as easily, and you can. He can fly a bit more under the radar and assume, you know, people will assume he's doing reasonable president things where he's, you know, signing all these awful executive orders and stuff like that. That would be the only thing. It becomes less of a spectacle and more of just day-to-day creep of evil.
1: Yeah. That said, though, I don't really see DeSantis. I don't. There are certainly outcomes in which he beats Biden, but I just calling it today, I would. Favor Biden yeah. against him. I think he would definitely beat Kamala. Kind For of sure. no question there. But yeah. um I don't know. I think the, the idea of DeSantis as like a national candidate who would like win undecideds, I really think that is yet to be seen. Like, oh, yeah. they're just, you know, we kind of saw it with the midterms. Like, obviously, there was a Dobbs effect, there's a benefit there but it's not like mm. the republicans are like going to become pro-choice or like meaningfully <laughs> communicate that to people in 2024. No. And like we saw with the midterms, the culture stuff like i it just does alienate people. Mm. Like if that's all you talk about, like that's the, all the republicans talk about, like they've just thrown all their chips towards like CRT and like trans panic. It's like even if people, even if people like, if you're just going off like numbers on a sheet of paper, like if you're just going off polls, even if you think they kind of agree with you, if that's all you talk about, you're frothing at the mouth about it, that turns people off. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think you're going to see
2: a bit of a schism with the republicans anyway i mean you've got the people all the all the conservative commentators calling each other names or groomers or whatever just yeah just because they've cast their lot with trump or desantis whichever one they don't like so they'll one will steal votes for the from the other that's yeah
1: i like that like yeah so the latest thing is trump calling desantis a pedophile for going to those parties yeah. and then like desantis <laughs> people are like oh well like you you know you hung out with jeffrey Epstein, but it's it is funny that, like, neither side can, like, deny the weird thing their guy did. Like, both yeah. those things are, like, incredibly weird to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, both Donald Trump hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein, obviously. But also, yeah, DeSantis is, like, a 27-year-old hanging out at these high school parties. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when that first came out and Republicans were like, oh, I've will. I i done this. That's and it's normal. like, yeah, yeah, of course you have. <laughs> <laughs> I still do this, like yeah, of course, incredibly sus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I,
0: I don't know. You've given me wet dream ideas of. Uh what could happen with uh, Joe Biden becoming president and just fucking <laughs> dying in the middle of his uh, fucking second week you know that's exactly at least we
2: have some good content exactly that,
0: that's the type yeah. of you know evil us from the second and third world want to inflict on America not like actual people suffering even though obviously people would suffer from this but just the, these these uh, epic 360 no scope uh, me moments uh, happening with your government yeah. is literally what we what we live on that's why if you, if you talk Talk about uh, talk to like uh, I don't know ninety percent of people from abroad and ask them like what was an interval in your life when you like were incredibly actively following American politics like all of them are gonna tell you you know the Trump years like I like everybody my fucking grandmother who doesn't probably even know what America is uh, turned on the TV because you know our good old Cheeto boy was always there so uh, uh, the U.S. never fails to disappoint on the on on the field of. Uh, elections and i'm looking forward to the to the coming one especially the the coverage by by you guys god yeah, it was so slap.
1: fucking easy to do the show during trump <laughs>
0: there's just never
2: a slow news day it was awesome so easy no it's amazing it, it's a it's a content mill it's amazing yeah um but uh as we're wrapping up here we're getting towards the end uh i wanted briefly to to talk about fighting in the age of loneliness and for for any listeners who aren't aware this is a doc mini series that um on mma that Felix produced with John Boyce. Um, Just from a technical perspective, I'm curious what it was like going from an unscripted podcast format to something as rigidly structured as a documentary series. Um, I know you were a sports writer in the past, so did this feel kind of like a return to form, or
1: or was it more of a challenge? It was definitely a challenge. I had never, ever written anything that long. It was by far the Mm -hmm. longest thing I ever uh, wrote, and I think the original draft would have probably worked out to, like, three and a half hours or four of, uh, screen time. And we didn't really have time for that. Yeah. Um, the actual writing itself was quite difficult at first because it was, it was sort of hard to give form to something that, you know, a, I had no experience with, um, you know, a, a documentary script and B I didn't, I, it, I didn't really know what the thrust of it was until I finished the first draft of part one. And I honestly mm-hmm. think I think like some people really like part one, but I actually do kind of think it's the weakest part that I, I wrote. I think like the production's great, but just the writing I wish I'd done better because I wasn't as consciously writing it for narration at that point. Yeah. And, I hadn't quite gotten the thrust of what it was going to be about yet. Um, And I obviously I went back and I rewrote it and it went through several uh, rereads and rewrites by me. Um, But after that, like from part two on, it was actually pretty easy to write because it just, it took, it took a few weeks and I finally kind of got what I was trying to say. I kind of figured it out and Honestly, just as a project, it was like the historical aspects were, I mean, I just, I was obsessed with MMA. It was like the main thing I cared about, my main interest, uh, you know, something I trained into and like cared a lot about the history of for a very long time, like 10 years or more at that point by the time I was writing it. So I was really for a lot of it just going from memory. And there were Hmm. some things I would like double check but um yeah after part two i didn't find it all that difficult to write but it just with writing anything getting the first part done is always the hardest part yeah but um i also you know i did i had the benefit of a a lot of resources that um you know i previously didn't have when writing like um I got amazing fact checking from SB nation. So even like I, I would double check like fight records and rewatch events to make sure my characterization of them was accurate. And, you know, I had, they hadn't been like tainted by memory. Um, but even when I would get like a detail wrong or like, um, you know, conflate to events. SB Nation just has like such good MMA writers and such Mm -hmm. good fact checkers that, um, actually I rewatched it recently and, um, there is, there was only one mistake I found, but it it was a graphic and it was so like, I think, I think I might be the only one who caught it. So (laughs) I'm not even going to say what it is. (laughs) is. Don't. (laughs)
2: Now, now I'm going to be combing through it looking for something tiny. Uh, I
1: I will tell you what it is. Actually, it's um, it referred to it referred to um, someone as a uh, they referred to someone's UFC record, but it included their fights in the WEC World Extreme Cage Fighting, which was at one time not owned by the UFC, then owned mm -hmm. by the UFC, and it Uh, converted that their fights there into their UFC record. And obviously, as we saw after the acu- acquisition of world extreme cage fighting, that actually a lot of their fighters were UFC caliber, uh, huh. both, you know, obviously their UFC caliber, because that just became like their lower weight divisions just became part of the UFC. But even, you know, in the heavier weight classes, they turned out to be all, quite good and i definitely you know wouldn't call WEC a b league promotion after we realized the level of talent uh that all those guys had but um yeah that was the only mistake i saw that's barely even a mistake that's not yeah and it's also an easy mistake to make yeah I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the type
2: of thing that, like you said, no one's going to notice that, but you probably like. Yeah. We're always more critical of our own work than than anyone else would be. Like, even if it's something bigger than that, most people wouldn't care.
1: I think, yeah. It's, yeah someone, someone, like, someone at SV Nation probably like, probably put that in and post, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was like, they're like, oh, uh, we should put WEC in here, and yeah. like, uh-huh. they just like forgot, you know. And yeah. it's such a small thing and like a two-hour thing.
2: Yeah. One other thing that I thought was pretty striking was the juxtaposition of MMA imagery, you know, like people covered in blood, people lying knocked out on the mat, uh, stuff like that, with quotes from various US presidents about how Americans are peaceful and slow to anger. And there's obviously plenty of analysis of alienation and assorted societal ills in the series, but this part in particular raises the question for me is there a propensity for violence in Americans that we don't see elsewhere? Uh, Does MMA and sport in general just act as a release valve for frustration and anger generated by the realities of life under capitalism? Or is there just something about Americans that makes us particularly bloodthirsty?
1: I'm more... I don't know. I I would say my thinking on this has changed over time. I think, like, Mm. initially... Uh, and still i think that watching mma for audience members it definitely acts as a release valve yeah mm-hmm. but i also think there's another dimension to it that i actually kind of wish i thought of while i was writing it and the, it goes more towards sports in general uh, uh but specifically football mm. and i would say that violence in sports in some ways is like for americans it's like a kid imitating his parents i think that we like football because it's like it's like a pretend war Hmm. and we look at coaches like generals and it's like a war that we can sort of participate in yeah And, and i don't know i i think that i don't know there are two sides to it because Americans don't really have that much of a fighting culture compared to, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the English or most other places, really. It's more of a talking culture, but it's also a much more violent country, right, Mm -hmm. than a lot of other places. Uh, Certainly a much higher murder rate. And you can attribute that to a number of material things, and those are largely responsible for it. But I do also think, you know, as we spoke about earlier, that there is some effect that, um, you know, knowing that your country is buttressed by all this violence, Mm -hmm. that that has some tangible effect on people's conduct and behavior.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one, because on the one hand, you don't want to, you know, essentialize and say, oh, you know, all Americans are inherently violent because that you get a little bit close to to head measuring there. Um, But. It's it's weird to see like the uh, the other day there was a a, a, a um, road road rage incident where these two guys were both armed, they both shot at each other and they ended up killing each other's children in their, yeah. in their cars. Yeah. It's, like, it's like Jesus Christ. Like what the hell? that we we are so unbelievably accustomed to hearing about this stuff but that, that it takes something truly shocking and like
0: deeply darkly funny what happened to fist like fighting to just fucking you know or like pretend to fist fight oh lord you're... That's all like everybody fucking like uh, for a country where you guys off each other all the fucking time the se- like everybody screams assault assault when you even pull someone's jacket you know there's there's these two incredible extremes where you know you're getting your your head blown out or your kids head blown out and uh, you know if if you if you touch me I will immediately call the cops here where we're balanced we beat the shit out of each other or we talk <laughs> shit and then you know both of them both of us cower out of beating the shit out of each other Sometimes, in extreme cases, somebody pulls a knife and then everybody runs away. But, like, you know, it, it, obviously, this is toxic and, uh, you know, the, the violence is not acceptable, blah, 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 all the cliches uh, under the yeah, roof yeah, that yeah. I can spell out here. But I, I, nobody fucking dies at the end of the day, which is, uh, you know, superior to an extent.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, we have guns. A lot of other countries have guns, but don't kill each other as much. We have societal problems. Other countries have societal problems, they don't kill each other as much. It's just a, it's a fascinating question to think about. Like what is it? What is it about us? Like is it I don't know, is it a a rapid decline from extreme comfort to moderate comfort and we're we're just not accustomed to that whereas someone who's more accustomed to living uncomfortably is, you know, more likely to take it in stride. I don't know. I think there are a lot of factors that go into it. Absolutely.
0: Global. Okay and that leads us towards the end of this uh, episode if you want to support the show please check out our Patreon uh there you can get many bonuses such as early episodes completely exclusive episodes and uh, access to a wider community under the banner of the uh, the program uh with uh, that out of the way uh Felix genuinely thank you so much for your time this was no lie an absolute an absolute blast uh we would love to have you on uh anytime again uh before we end it please um, tell our audience about uh, maybe something that you're working on or where they could find the show obviously all the links you can send me five you can send me 5000 will be plugged in the, in the description
1: well uh you know you can uh find our our podcast on spotify or soundcloud or anywhere uh uh, you can find our weekly free episodes if you want to subscribe to us patreon.com slash chopo trap house we uh we're in the midst of uh matt and chris's incredible and acclaimed historical series on the 30 years of war hell on earth which really good really really loving uh they did an amazing job uh and there are there are going to be more series like that coming this year and coming years where um, we've definitely seen how much people like the more written, prepared, limited series. And I have one that I'm working on right now, and I know Will has one he's working on. Nice. Uh, also, you know, um, our friends over on our Twitch do really funny, funny shit. Uh, tw- uh, Twitch.tv slash Chopo Trap House, same address as the Patreon. And they also have a Patreon, which we'll link for their show, which is also very funny. All right. We hope you all enjoyed this
2: episode. Thank you
1: for listening. Thanks, Felix, for coming on. This has been The D Program. I'm JT. I'm Yugopnik And I'm Felix.
0: And not all Americans are bad, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>